as it is true, oftentimes today. You know this very well. So also was it true in the first century that godly, intelligent, and gifted preachers attracted a large following. John, as you witness in the text of the New Testament, was one such gifted and indeed prophetic minister. The first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus, speaks of John the Baptist and his ministry this way, quote, John was a man of virtue and great influence who greatly moved the crowds that came to hear him speak. If you were to look in the Gospels as well, beyond simply antiquities or historical features from Josephus, if you look straight in the Gospels themselves, we see again a couple of instances where John possessed quite a large following. We noticed earlier last week, as a minister of the covenant, John's following in chapter 3. As we see in verse 10, as he deals with crowds that are gathering, again, as he isolates in 12 the tax collectors in verse 14, as he speaks to the soldiers. And then by the time we get to verse 15, notice once again, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Again, great numbers concerning their hearts, in their hearts concerning John. About what exactly? Whether he himself might be the Christ. Similarly, as we continue with this thought of godly and intelligent preachers, whether now or then, attract a large following. Again, we see confusion here in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. You don't need to turn there, but perhaps you are familiar with the instance of John's gospel in chapter 3, where the same discussion of expectation and wonder was surrounding John, his own disciples wondering about his importance in relationship to none other than the ministry of our Lord. Again, John's disciples questioning him regarding Jesus and his disciples, baptizing maybe even larger crowds than John was baptizing. But important as we consider both celebrity today, and when I say celebrity, you know, evangelicals are a tiny, tiny group, and anyone who is a celebrity within their movement really is no celebrity, but nonetheless, whether we think of high-profile or prolific speakers and ministers and so on and so forth today, or we consider it with John as a minister of high profile in the first century, we we do well to note John's response to the disciples that are surrounding him and any who would follow podcasts or ministers this day. Make due notice of John's response to his disciples as a faithful minister. If we were in John 3, he simply concludes this way. Looking to disciples, he says, you yourselves bear me witness. In other words, you've heard it from me first. You yourselves bear me witness 
that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. And then this great mission statement and purpose statement to the ministry of John as he sees his own role as a faithful, yes, indeed, important and faithful minister. But he is not the Lord. So he says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And here in our passage this morning, we see how Luke wants to end any prevailing confusion by the time that Luke writes his gospel. It's not that when John said it right there, it all ended. The discussion was over. No one followed John any longer because they heard from John's own lips, I told you, I'm not him. Follow him. He must increase. I am fading to the backdrop. And we think, well, then that sums it up. It certainly did not, of which we'll see later throughout Luke's gospel in another instance. So here in our passage, as Luke sits to write and craft a gospel for our sake and even within the context of the first century. He here in our passage wants to end any prevailing confusion regarding the role of John the Baptist as a minister in light of the supremacy of Jesus who is the Lord. That John himself is pointing you away from him. The mercy of Christ is made clear to each reader, to each who hear the text, Lord of the covenant, John, it is critical and critically only a minister of the covenant, one who preaches its contents faith. We saw last week earlier in Luke, he cannot provide the thing signified. Our first indication here is if you think of the text. The way the text is functioning is John, again, is fading in the text as to Luke's strategy as he writes his gospel. I say his strategy is this, and it's a little bit off, broken chronology. Okay, so, so Luke is writing. Luke, you're thinking, yes, we're going down a pathway towards something, and then there's an awkwardness where it's skipped. It's a little bit left-footed here. Why? Again, let me, we're watching John wind down and Jesus arrive and the transition Luke is making is imprisonment. So you're following Luke's strategy, verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been all that, what happened to John as a result is he locked up John in prison. In other words, if I could explain, we know by the use of the other gospels, verse 20 Why is that a problem? Why is that a broken crown? Right? Because Luke records Jesus' baptism after he reports that Luke is recording very carefully for you at the work of John because the Lord has arrived. This in John, where John says, oh, you're coming to me for baptism. I should be baptized by you. We know that John baptized Jesus. Why so silent on John's role? Indeed, he was faithful. He was critically important to preparing the way of the Lord. 
Jesus spoke of John's significance of John. Again, it's not to say that he, he, he sees uh, the chronology, but it doesn't matter as much as the Lord himself. Treatment that Luke quickly and abruptly sees John passing off the scene into imprisonment. We think, yeah. That is all who have been born by natural just in the crowd in chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. He is not having that discussion. And Luke writes in such a way to accomplish that end, to clarify 28 of Luke 7 for you. He says, this is our Lord speaking of the significant born of natural generation that is greater than John. Don't think him little. Don't think his ministry insignificant. The one who is least in the kingdom of God. In other words, belong as he is offered to you in the gospel is more important arrival of our Lord and the way that John is piecing that together. But I don't... But what else could I insert there for your sake? In your mind, have a sentence starting with the object of my faith. What? Perhaps you don't say John the... What is it that you say this morning? If there is anything written upon that line but Jesus Christ, the object of your faith cannot save you. This is Luke's point. And it remains the point this morning. That if the object of your faith is not Jesus Christ our Lord, then you are not saved. And it isn't, or should I say, there are not two blanks. And there aren't multiple answers. It is Jesus, full stop, is the object of my faith. This is what Luke is getting at, and he will reveal to us for the next 10 years as we go through Luke. He will reveal to us that that is the point, that Jesus is the sole object of saving faith. Any other substitute is sure to condemn. And it is this greater importance of the saving faith of Jesus that became the content of the apostles' preaching. You remember, so some would say that Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. Many would put that forward, that, that Luke, having wrote them both, that really we have it, Luke, as it's separated, then we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. But, but it's actually many think, and the thought is that Luke is kind of part one of part two, which is Acts. So Luke here, who is going to write this gospel narrative for us, and then we see it as it is the actual lifeblood of the preaching of the apostles. By the time we get to the book of Acts, and the church is exploding through the preaching of the gospel in the exclusivity of Christ. This is where Luke is leading you. In Acts, he records Acts 4.12, 
And you know this text, but I cite for you, finally, in the supremacy of Jesus, in the exclusivity of his name for salvation, his person and his work, that if your faith rests upon any other object, conceive of it as a vessel that you possess and you're placing it back upon a saving object. You're investing it into that which you intend will be your savior. If it is anything other, the apostles say, then Jesus, we are sure to be condemned. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. Universally, not a single individual exists for salvation. For there is no other name under all of heaven given among men, including this morning by which we must be saved. This is the content of the apostles' preaching, and we will explore it through the gospel of Luke as we see it building and growing, as indeed we see the beauty of our Lord emerge more and more in His saving grace on our behalf. It is to this greater importance of our Lord over that of John, That we, being even a least member in his kingdom, are considered even greater than John. It is this greater importance of our Lord in 22. I have one central observation I would like to make for central observation from verses 21. And really, I think that's probably as far as verse 21. And my central observation is this. The meaning of our Lord's baptism. Meaning of our Lord's baptism for our just passage with you in the next few weeks of looking at chapter 3 and chapter 4. And how significant. Now, when all the people were baptized, a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. Alongside or in the presence of, or alongside, being baptized. And Jesus was also baptized. Baptism. Now, why is Luke writing it this way? Along with the others was being baptized. And downplaying, again, the role of John. And we find the first thing about him, simply that he is being baptized alongside everybody else. What is taking place here? Why is this being mentioned this way for you. Our Lord is being baptized. Of Jesus' baptism that is work here in this narrative. Eyes are steadfast in looking upon Him. And the Supreme has sins to repent of. Right? We confess that. Baptism not for sake of his own repentance, for he knew no sin. But he is being baptized to identify with sinners who do. And to identify with their need to trust in God. Jesus is being baptized Not because he has sins to repent of, but in order to identify with sinners 
who do and to identify with their need to trust in God. Do you find yourself there? Are you, have you identified yourself as such? As a sinner? One who trespasses the law of God? One who has broken his divine commands? One who has committed both sins of omission, I simply didn't do it, and sins of commission, I didn't care and did it anyway. Yes, most surely, each of us is there. Most surely, each of us identifies ourselves as that one who is in need of redemption or in need of forgiveness. And so we gaze upon our Lord here who identifies with us, sinners who need repentance and forgiveness and identifies with our need to trust in God. Let me, if I could, explain just a little bit further in this principle of identification in the baptism of our Lord. Jesus must identify with sinners and their need to trust in God in order that He, standing in their place, might resist sin and all of its temptations. Hebrews chapter 2, we had the privilege of being able to go through that book and seeing the work of Christ on our behalf and then how he became our high priest, perfect in his standing before God and mediating that perfection on our behalf records it this way in chapter 2. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. Think of your temptations this week. Think of that place where standing on your own, you give way to sin and its temptations. Think of how you will never feel that sense of freedom from that. The guilt that churns within, the burden that is bore by your weaknesses that continue and persist again and again and again that display your weakness. Where do you gaze? To whom do you flee? Hebrews chapter 2 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus must identify with sinners and their need in order that he, standing in their place, might resist sin and its temptations. We'll see this develop, and this is exactly what Luke is getting toward as we see, again, for our justification for his own sins, of which he must repent of, but rather to identify with sinners, their need, not his own, but their need to trust in God. Warning, and our need, in order that he might trust and obey God in all things. Tism, 
is for our justification. It is to identify place, resisting sin to which we give way, and trusting by Luke, beginning with his baptism. The next phrase in bringing men by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified as one not in need of repentance of his own sins, who indeed have, do, and will continue to struggle sons to glory. Verse 10, that is why he is not, I will sing your praise. And again, and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children, that is the devil, and deliver. We see back in our text, we see that Jesus' baptism is the beginning of his public ministry. It is the beginning at this moment of baptism, of his identifying with sinners in their plight and doing the work that the Father has given him to do. You recall John 17, where our Lord is just preparing for this time of crucifixion and suffering. And he offers up to God what is referred to as his high priestly prayer. And he speaks of completing the work that the Father has given him to do. But you ask right now as we look at our Lord's baptism and entering into our place by identifying with our weaknesses, what work is it that the Father has given the Son to do now as he is baptized, now as the Spirit is going to empower his ministry, now as the Father is looking upon him as the beloved Son, what work is it that the Father has given Jesus, the Son, to perform? Of which we will witness for several chapters now throughout the Gospel of Luke. What is our Lord about to do? Of which you receive of which you rest upon for your salvation. The work that the Father has given unto the Son is simply this, to fulfill the demands and suffer the curses of the law in order that lawbreakers might be saved. That is, the Son is receiving the work that the Father has given Him to do that He might preach to the brothers, that He might rescue the children who have fallen in sin and guilt and condemnation. He is suffering in our place. He is the one who obey the word of the Lord perfectly. But He is here in His baptism identifying with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, for our sake, for us, sinners, 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our sin, of which we have a remarkable ability to minimize. If there's anything of which we are ingenious at, it is indeed the task of minimizing our own sin. But we get a different picture when we look through the text of Holy Scripture. Our sin to each one of us in this room, our sin of adultery, our sin of coveting, our sin of not honoring our parents, the sin of murder, the sin of idolatry, the sin of stealing that which did not belong to us or the gaining of wealth by wrongful means. Our sin in thought, word, and deed must be paid for. And to pay for it is costly. John the Baptist or some other object of our faith cannot pay this penalty. What is it, again, I ask, what is it that you rest your salvation upon? What is that that you wrote in the blank at the very beginning? Our sin, every one of us, our sin must be paid for and doing so is costly. To the cost of John 3.16, a text perhaps you're familiar with. That explains the great cost of what we see in Luke of our Lord doing at his baptism. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When all the people were being baptized, and Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you, you, Jesus, you, no one else, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, of whom I am well pleased, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life.
he is the true son of God. The only one by whom we can be justified. And as we confess this morning, be adopted as children belonging to the same father. He is the only means by which we can become children with whom the Father is well pleased. Not because of our personal performance, but as we see here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the performance of another. I want to conclude my time with you simply this way by asking One large question, and it's kind of broken down into three smaller ones. Looking upon our Lord's baptism as the emerging principle of identification, identifying with you, what sin is it that you think God cannot forgive? What are you tortured by? It's nagging at. What sin is it that you are right now hiding from those around you? Those who are closest to you. What is your greatest concern, worry, of humiliation? Let me speak into that in conclusion. One author addresses the issue this way. I'm simply going to use him as he is very pointed and draws our attention directly to our Lord's baptism and our plight of unconfessed, worrisome, troublesome fear and sin. On our Lord's baptism, he says this, quote, Here is Jesus saying to each of us this. My friend, I was baptized with the baptism of sinners. I asked, I asked you before I started reading this, what sin is it that you think that God cannot forgive? What sin is it that you are right now hiding from those who are closest to you? Jesus says, my friend, I was baptized with the baptism of sinners I was baptized with baptism of sinners because I came to take away the ugly sins, the despicable sins, the shameful sins, the ex- Here's what you need to do. You need right now to decide sin. You need to turn to me and turn away from me. And when the evil one is licking his chops, getting ready to display your sin to the... There's no more sin remaining in him. It has trusted in him. 
My child has preferred that I have for my child. Look to me alone as the object of you. I thank you for your covenant of redemption.